Our next speaker is the director of the FinFitch Research Program at the Oceanic, Oceanic Institute of Hawaii Pacific University. OI has been a world leader in the development of applied aquaculture technologies for both marine fish and, as well as marine ornamentals for over five decades. Uh, Chad has been at OI for over 14 years and he's researched several species of marine ornamental and marine fin fish species, uh, food fish species, sorry. Uh, most notably in 2015, Chad's lab was the first in the world to successfully culture the yellow tang, which is the most commercially important reef species in the Hawaii region. Uh, Chad's lab continues to do excellent work in marine ornamental aquaculture, and so without further ado, please welcome Chad to the stage. Okay, can you guys hear me okay? All right, so uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here this morning. I know there's a lot of competing interests with the, all the coral and fish and everything in the, in the trade show, so I appreciate you guys coming to hear me. Um, what I'm going to go over today is really something that's um, been dear to my heart, which is obviously trying to commercialize the production of marine ornamental species, um, particularly taking something from the kind of discovery phase all the way through to the commercialization phase, which definitely is not without its perils. So I wanted to share some of those with you and some of the ups and downs of, along the way. So before I get into what we're doing with ornamentals, um, since the theme of MACNA this year is aquaculture and celebrating aquaculture, I thought it was important to explain why aquaculture is even relevant. Um, you may or may not be aware, but we are really good at reproducing and not just reproducing fish, but reproducing humans. And on the planet, we have an abundance of humans, seven and a half billion already and rapidly growing and approaching 10 billion by 2050. Um, and what this means is we need more food. And aquaculture is one of the fastest growing forms of food production and actually one of the most efficient forms of protein production. But I'm not gonna get into that uh, today. Um, but what I will touch on is the fact that the world's fisheries are maxed out. And you've probably heard that oceans are overfished and oceans fisheries are collapsing and those types of things. But what it really means when you look at a figure, it's actually pretty staggering. So the blue line in this figure is the global production of fish that comes from wild capture. And you can see since the 80s, that line has relatively been flat. So for the past 30 years, there hasn't been any increase in the amount of fish coming from wild capture. And this isn't due to us slowing down our efforts to collect, to collect them. We're actually really good at becoming more and more efficient at extracting them out of the oceans. The problem is the oceans can't give us any more. But as you can also see, the demand for fish is increasing. And so that difference has been made up by the red section of this figure. And that red section represents aquaculture, or the amount of fish that have been produced from aquaculture. And um, in 2015, for the first time ever, the amount of fish produced from aquaculture actually exceeded the amount of fish being produced from wild capture. And this is forecast to continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. Uh, in fact, by 2050, when the population reaches 10 billion people, we're actually gonna need 70% more protein on the planet than we have now. And so if this was to come from the, fisher the fisheries, that would be 85 million tons, or roughly one and a half more times than the oceans are currently producing. So currently, it's, or, um, obviously it's not gonna come from the oceans, it's gonna have to come from culture. And this idea of 
farming the seas is not new. In fact, Jacques Cousteau back in 1970, the early 70s, was uh, you know, noted for saying we must actually do this. We must plant the sea and herd its animals using the sea as farmers instead of hunters. And when you think about it, it actually makes sense. We don't go out and hunt chickens anymore. We don't go out and hunt pigs. We farm these things. So in the case of fisheries, you know, aquaculture is really the next frontier in food production. This is also coupled with the fact that coral reefs are really stressed. Um, just today or yesterday, there was an article about the Great Barrier Reef and the forecast is being downgraded for the conditions of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, coral reefs around the world are in crisis. This is largely due to the changing climate and ocean acidification, overfishing, pollution, all those kind of things that you, you, know, you hear about causing uh, the demise of coral reefs. But as the population increases to 2050, there's actually the forecast that coral reefs might be gone by 2050. So this is a horrifying sentiment for all of us in here that love coral, um, but we also love the planet, and so we need to definitely do our part to help conserve these resources. Now, the aquarium fishery has been targeted as a threat to coral reefs as well, and in some cases it, it may be with unsustainable fishing practices, but really, by and large, the bigger threats are the global ones that, that I just mentioned before. So how do we all fit into this? Um, or how does Oceanic Institute fit into this? Well, I'm gonna give you a little bit of history of Oceanic Institute, then I'll tell you about kind of some of the projects we're working on and then get into the ornamental aspect of things. But OI was actually founded in 1960, so it's been around over 50 years, and it was founded as a marine research and marine animal rehabilitation facility. You can see in the top picture there, it was actually some dolphins being re-released into the ocean back in the early 70s. Um, in the early 70s, the marine mammal aspect of Oceanic Institute became Sea Life Park, which actually became a separate entity, but it's still next door to Oceanic Institute. It's kind of a marine um, park like uh, SeaWorld or a small version of SeaWorld. Anyway, that, that's still operating, but it operates separate, separate from Oceanic Institute. And really what we focus on at OI is the aquaculture and coastal resource management research. Particularly, we've been focusing on high value species like uh, Pacific white shrimp, um, some of the higher value food fish species, and of course, marine ornamentals fits in there nicely. In 2003, we formed an affiliation with Hawaii Pacific University, and that let them basically create a master's program. So in 2007, they started a master's program in marine science. Uh, and then in 2014, we actually formally merged with the university, and so now we're technically considered part of Hawaii Pacific University. There's a fly flying around me, so if you see me doing that, it's because I'm a fly. Um, <laughs> these are some of the facilities we have. It's a 56-acre campus. Um, it's a horrible location to work, as you can imagine. Um, with, you know, coming to work every day, being across the street from the ocean. Um, but as you can see, there's uh, not just marine labs where we grow fish, but there's things for shrimp, there's things for uh, water quality labs. We have a learning center where we do classes. Um, but all of the fish research that I'm gonna be talking about takes place mostly in the lower part of the, the picture here at the Doherty Labs and those marine fish tank systems at the bottom. That's where we keep our broodstock yellow tang actually in those black tanks at the bottom. And the primary goals of our work there are to provide a sustainable alternative to wild fishery products. Um, and also in doing so to create new economic opportunities for the Pacific region. So we feel Hawaii is an ideal location to do this R&D. 
uh, and to basically develop technologies that would be exported around the world, but particularly we're focusing on the, the Pacific region. These are just some photographs of some of our activities there at the labs. And as you know, aquaculture or keeping marine animals doesn't just involve the biology of the animals. There's a lot of other things that go into um, keeping animals alive in captivity. And um, the speaker before me touched on some of the systems, technology, and engineering requirements. And you guys are all real familiar with that, with keeping your aquariums. Certainly developing systems suited to keeping a variety of stages of marine life are really important. So that's a focus area of ours. Also spawning captivity, just getting animals to reproduce uh, consistently and reliably is an is a, is a area unto its own, as is live feed culture. We're gonna to touch on that a little bit later about we spent nearly 10 years developing suitable live feed culture that actually is what enabled us to make some breakthroughs in the ornamental culture that we have. Uh, then larval rearing, you know, taking care of the larval fish and then the nursery for juvenile fish. All of these stages are equally important when you're considering culturing marine species. These are some of the hatchery facilities that we use. Um, I don't know if my laser pointer is going to reach all the way to the screen, not really. Well, anyway, up in the upper left-hand corner and uh, just underneath it is our prototype um, commercial scale fish hatchery where we have some large scale tanks. As we develop technologies to um, commercialize, this is where we can scale up that technology to produce you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of fingerlings if we need to. But the majority of our ornamental species work has taken place in our research hatchery which is in the middle there, which is smaller, 200 to 1,000 liter size tanks replicated so we can do trials. Uh, we have indoor uh, phytoplankton and zooplankton production systems. And the goal of using these facilities is to basically take eggs, like you see in the lower left-hand corner there, and raise them up all the way through to a market-sized animal. So some of the projects we've worked on um, more recently, uh, just to bring you up to speed, are with the uh, food fish sector. And particularly in Hawaii, there's two high value food fish that are cultured, which are moi, which is the one in the top right there, and the amberjack, which is the bottom right. These are cultured in, um, in the hatchery, produced, fingerlings are produced in the hatchery, and then they're actually grown offshore in these submersible cages. And there's two companies uh, in Hawaii now using this technology to produce fish. We've also worked um, with Hawaiian fish ponds and we've produced mullet, which is a herbivorous fish that was traditionally produced uh, by ancient Hawaiians in these fish ponds. And we've helped them restock their fish ponds to produce, uh, to have them once again be used as a food production source. We've also partnered with the state to produce sea urchins, um, which they're not fish, but they're important as well. And they are used for invasive algae control. So we actually produce sea urchins to uh, outplant on the reefs to help mitigate the invasive algae uh, in the region. We also currently have some projects in the Western Pacific in Saipan and Palau. Uh, in case you're not familiar with the, where those are, they're just kind of above Australia, uh, just to the right of China there. In Saipan, we've, they're, they're interested in culturing rabbit fish. Uh, this is a herbivorous reef species that they collect in big numbers, 
somewhat unsustainably because they collect them from the near shore environment as juveniles uh, for pickling, as you can see in that jar down in the bottom there. So they actually have two sizes for our market size for this species. The, the adult size is targeted as well as the juvenile side, the juvenile size. So we've helped them set up a hatchery at the college to start developing culture methods for this species and it's actually going uh, pretty well. We have a, a similar project in Palau focused on the coral grouper. And this is a, a really interesting uh, grouper species. Um, it's particularly high value because it's, it's valuable for the live fish reef trade in, in Asia. Um, so the, these fish are actually shipped live to the market uh, and then they're, they're sold for food at that point. Um, this particular species of grouper is very difficult to culture. It has really, really tiny larvae, very similar to the reef species we've been working with. And so real, one of the interesting crossovers from our success with the yellow tang is some of the methods we use to culture yellow tang, we've kind of backwards engineered for the grouper and we've made some real headway in um, improving survival with the species. So we're currently working with the college in Palau to uh, develop this method locally there. So really yellow tang is what we, is probably what most of you want to talk about. And I do want to get to yellow tang. And, and our kind of current status of where we're at with yellow tang. But before we get to where we're at now, we actually have to go back in time a little bit to the past to understand how we got to where we are today. So in 1998, so a little over 20 years ago now, um, there was a study done by the University of Hawaii and the state of Hawaii that looked at the effects of aquarium collecting on the reef. And what that study found was basically there were somewhere between 40 to 60% declines in target species like yellow tang, potter's angels, Achilles tang, what have you, okay? So this was kind of the first indication that yes, aquarium collecting is having an effect locally on the reefs as far as the decline of species. And shortly after that, there was a, there was a conference on the culture of marine ornamental fish. Um, and interestingly enough, I was at this meeting, and it was uh, actually right here in Disney World in 2001. I'm not sure if anyone else in the room was there. Andy was, uh, a couple of the people in the room, great. So I think the real interesting thing is as I was looking over the abstracts from that meeting, it just blew me away how far we've come in the past 20 years. Um, hardly any of the talks at that meeting were about the culture of ornamental fish. Most of it was about the collection, most of it was about disease, most of it was about those types of things. Um, and really in early 2000s, only a handful of species were being cultured. And now we have, uh, we're approaching 400 species is the latest on the list, I think, uh, according to Matt Peterson. So we've come a long way since 2001. Um, in 2001, we were celebrating the captive rearing of Centropygi. Uh, so flame angel fish were cultured for the first time back then. I know Frank Bench had cultured some of the other Centropygi. Uh, Karen Britton had worked on Genocanthus. So early, in the early parts of 2000, um, really the, the big deal was this angelfish uh, breakthrough. And what allowed the breakthrough was copepods. So I think, and I don't, whether it was publicly known or it was kind of kind of held close to the vest at that time, I'm not sure, but, but that was the key. And we found that with flame angel fish, some of the jacks like bluefin trevally, certainly red snapper, the key to culturing these fish was having the right live food and the right live food at the time and still is today, the copepods. And what this figure shows off to the left is that 
Um, it's kind of a generic figure that represents a number of species, but the blue line indicates that we were getting somewhere around 40 to 50% survival through the first week using copepods and virtually no survival uh, through the first week using anything else. And that held true for these species on the right as well as a number of species uh, after them. So basically it became a copepod thing. And from in, our, in the case of Oceanic Institute, we had a, we kind of hit the pause button on our marine fish production um, because we really knew that there was no point in pursuing uh, large-scale production of these fish that required copepods without first knowing how to produce and reliably produce large amounts of these copepods. And we spent a lot of time working on copepods, um, probably more than the seven years indicated here, but certainly at least that long, working on the production of parval calanus. Um, we became very familiar with all the different stages of parval calanus. Um, so what these photographs represent are the egg stage up on the upper left through the different, the six different noplier stages. There's five copepidite stages and two adult stages of, of these copepods. The scanning electron micrographs there just show kind of how cool they look if you were to get really up close and personal. But the really important thing as we were learning about the production of copepods was not necessarily only how to reproduce them in large amounts, but the fact that in the case of yellow tang and some other species like yellow tang, it became very clear that they could only consume the very early stages of the nauplii. And that might not seem like a problem until you realize that copepod nauplii become subsequent nauplii stages very quickly. And so in order to not only produce enough copepods, but producing enough copepods at the right stage became the real trick in having sufficient food for larval yellow tang. And so if you look at these diagrams, it's really the egg and the nauplii one, the, upper, the second one on the upper left there, that were the only useful food for yellow tang. Anything else just became a distraction in the tank for the animals. So producing tang and lots of tang is what we wanted to do. And just in case anyone wasn't paying attention, this isn't the tang we're talking about. This is the tang we're talking about, okay? Um, and the reason we wanted to produce tang was because it's uh, economically important to the state of Hawaii. This is some of the fishery data from the aquarium um, industry showing that basically the number of animals exported from Hawaii is somewhere between 300 to 400,000. It kind of peaked a little bit ago at 450,000. Um, but it's roughly hovering in that, re in that area, okay? So that's a, a, a decent number of animals. Uh, it has a very high value. The aquarium trade or the aquarium fishery is actually the highest value nearshore fishery in the state, even more valuable than other reef fish or the bottom, the bottom fish fishery. And by and large, the largest composition of the fishery is yellow tang. So I don't know if people realize it, but more than 80% of all of the, the aquarium fish that leave Hawaii are actually yellow tang. So um, if you're gonna target a, a species, it makes sense to target one that uh, makes a high value and high volume uh, for the state. And these are the data that are kind of getting everyone uh, polarized at the moment with regard to whether or not uh, the fishery is sustainable, okay? So I wanna walk you guys through this data so you um, can be educated as far as what it's actually showing and then you can make your own opinions. But 
if you want to um, draw your attention to the top blue line, basically uh, what this represents is the density of yellow tang in areas that have always been pr protected. So um, these are marine protected areas where fishing was never allowed. You can see the density has hovered between 20 to 30 or 25 individuals per 100 meters squared. Um, back in 99, after that study came out in Hawaii, they, they closed off some areas that were open to fishing and they called them fish replenishment areas or FRAs. So those would be represented by the red line. So you can see the density in those areas was initially lower um, where fish were being collected. But then several years after the FRAs were established, the density came up and approached basically where the protected areas were and mirrored the population densities in, the, in those areas. The green line is uh, the density in areas that were open to fishing before the FRAs were established and continued to be open to fishing, okay? So you can see the density in the, in the, on the green line is quite a bit lower than the density in the red and the blue lines. And this difference is what is causing people to say, we need to stop fishing because there's clearly less fish in the areas that are fished than the areas that are not fished. However, if you look at the green line, you can see that the density really hasn't changed from at the start of the graph to the end. Um, so proponents of sustainable fishing say that this indicates that the fishing is actually sustainable in those areas. We're maintaining the population at an equal density, even though the fishing pressure has probably increased, okay? So I'm not here to argue one way or the other. Um, you can make your own conclusion, but clearly there's enough um, interest in this that this, F, this idea of um, shuttering the aquarium trade in Hawaii isn't going away. Uh, if anything, the, the public um, perception against it is growing. And I can tell you from being in Hawaii, it's, it's almost uh, unanimous in the, the local state as far as just the general population is concerned. They don't, they don't see the value of the industry. They, they think for sure it should just be shut down. Um, they'd rather have the fish on the reefs. So that's, that's the general perception from Hawaii. So I don't think this um, outcry against the collection of fish, whether it's sustainable or not, even though the data seem to indicate that it, it can be, is going away. So what does that mean? It means we probably need to look at aquaculture as at least an alternative uh, for the meantime. However, aquaculture isn't without its challenges. And so I'm gonna walk you through some of the challenges now that we face. And this is not just for yellow tang, but also for any species. Really the biggest one and the one that's been the hardest hurdle to get over is the small size. These have less than a millimeter eggs, less than two millimeter first feeding larvae. So they're definitely dealing with something really tiny, very fragile. Also these fish produce relatively small numbers of eggs, you know, hundreds to thousands at a time versus a food fish that can give you tens of thousands or maybe even millions of eggs at a time. So you're working with limited numbers. We also don't know the optimal broodstock husbandry and dietary requirements for these fish. I mean, we're, we're kind of just learning how to keep these fish alive for long periods of time in captivity. I don't think people realize it, but yellow tang actually can live to over 40 years old on the reef. And so we've, at Oceanic Institute, have a population of animals that have been with us for over 20 years, and they were probably collected as near adults <laughs> in their, in their um, prime. So we have animals that are probably 30 to 40 years old uh, easily in our facility. Um, and once we do understand how to condition them and, and keep them happy, we still have limited understanding of things that affect egg quality and egg production. So we're gonna get into some of the nitty gritty of fish reproduction here. 
So if there's any young eyes, you might need to avert them for a short period. We're gonna look at some fish uh, anatomy, uh, particularly how to tell the difference between males and females. Um, it, it wasn't known, um, or it wasn't really obvious to us when we were first working with yellow tang that you could actually sex them. Uh, the females have a much different genital pore opening. You can see there's a, a horizontal slit in the opening, and the opening itself is quite large compared to the males, which their um, genital pore opening is very similar in size to the anal pore opening. So you can actually sex males from females, and we started learning um, that you know, having more females and just a few males in a population was more advantageous for, for reproduction than, than having an equal ratio. Um, we also wanted to know when these animals could be expected to spawn. And so, and that's important when you're trying to culture anything to know when they're gonna spawn. And so in the wild, there was um, a study done by uh, Megan Bushnell in 2010 that looked at, you know, is there periodicity in the wild population spawning? And it turns out there actually is, and the, the data indicate that the, the peak spawning is around the full moon. And that's actually what we saw in our captive populations as well. So this is, uh, these are uh, data over a 30-day period um, in relation to the cycle of the moon. You can see that at the full moon, um, we have higher egg production than in the period where the new moon is. Um, the one thing that's also important to notice here is, and this was some of our earlier data, is that a lot of the eggs that were produced were infertilized or uh, infertile. And so this became a problem for us uh, for quite a period of time. As the animals were brought into captivity, it took them a while to condition and become happy enough to produce fertilized eggs. It's also important to know if they spawn throughout the whole year. Uh, when you're working with a species that you want to commercialize, uh, ideally you're going to have egg production that occurs over a whole year, uh, and certainly not, you don't want to work on a species that only produces a, for a very short period of time. So yellow tang will produce eggs over the whole year. Um, again, most of the eggs produced early on were, were infertile, um, and it only became after several months that we were getting some fertile eggs. But we did get enough eggs to document the embryonic development, and um, this is what the embryonic development of yellow tang look like. You can see that after about 21 hours, they hatch, but they hatch into something that's very primitive, uh, very representative of a lot of reef fish. They don't have functional eyes, they don't have a mouth, they don't have an intestinal tract. They basically use that yolk to live off of for the first two to three days of life, and they drift around basically until they become functional, uh, able to feed. And so uh, on day one, you can see the eyes are starting to form. Uh, by day two, their intestinal tract is starting to form. And by day four, their eyes are fully pigmented, their mouth is open, they're ready to eat. They actually need to eat uh, before this period. Otherwise, they're gonna starve. Um, so working with um, these day three, day four larvae is really where we begin the feeding uh, experiments. And just to give you an idea of how small these things are when we're actually starting to feed them, if you were to take a dime and then superimpose at the same scale, uh, feeding yellow tang, that's about the size of the animal you're working with, okay? So these things are really, really small and really difficult to uh, not just work with, but actually to even see in some cases. So we spent a long time working out the early feeding requirements for this species and getting through the first couple weeks. Um, and we seemed to be cycling through this first two weeks over and over and over again. I know back in the early days, um, when the University of Florida folks were working with yellow tang as well as blue tang, we had many phone conversations um, 
very frustrated that we couldn't seem to get past this point. Um, and we were, it was interesting to see the similarities in where we had these bottlenecks. And the biggest one that we were encountering early on, and actually to this day are still encountering, is this one week period. So getting the fish through this first week where you have lots of animals that will be eating and they seem to be doing really well in a tank. Um, but then the difference between day six and day seven can be this. You can have 100% you know, animals eating, looking great on day six. You come in on day seven and you have uh, only 25% left. And this, this period is really where um, we need to improve some of the efficiency in larval rearing because if you can increase the number of fish that are available early on and decrease that mortality, you have many more juveniles at the end. And then once we got past that part, we ended up with another bottleneck between day 20 to 35 where the animals are old, they're robust, they're actually starting to look like little fish and you know, one day you'll come in and unfortunately this guy has come and he tells the, he tells the fish to go to the bottom of the tank and, and that's you know, a, just a heartbreaking situation but we've unfortunately been there over and over again losing animals uh, after about a month of being in culture. However, after, despite all of that, and you know, in about, uh, it only took 15 years, but after 15 years, we finally got yellow tang to um, all the way through. And oops, I go back. Sorry, I want to make sure this plays. There we go. Um, so this is this was the site that we were waiting to see for so long. Um, you know, having animals settle uh, in our tanks, uh, feeding readily on a variety of foods uh, is just obviously just the, the most amazing thing. Uh, it took so long to get here. But the really striking thing was that we were able to do this in a way where we didn't just get one or two, but we actually got hundreds the, the first time through. And so it became apparent that this was gonna be something that we thought could have commercial application pretty quickly. And the result of this is that there are yellow tang juveniles being uh, made, made available to you commercially, uh, all the, albeit still in small numbers and the yield is still small, but, but they're, they're getting out there. The other really exciting thing was that right around the time that the yellow tang were cultured, the folks at University of Florida were working on the blue tang. And you know there was against, uh, because of the Nemo movie, there was a lot of outcry against dory, you know, don't buy a dory, leave them in the ocean, all these types of things. And there was a lot of pressure on the University of Florida folks to culture dory, especially when Disney had the plot line of Blue Tang being cultured in a lab for the movie. Um, so there's a, a lot of pressure on them, actually. So we, we worked closely with them as we were culturing the Yellow Tang, and they wanted to basically see if those methods could be adopted to the actual real-life dory, the, the hippo tang, or the Pacific blue tang. And Kevin Barden actually came out to Hawaii and basically worked with our staff to adopt the methods that we had for the blue tang. And lo and behold, it seemed to work really well for the, the blue tang right away. Um, so this was, a, uh, to, in my mind, a, like an even greater accomplishment than us culturing the yellow tang was the fact that the method could be applied to other species and it could work so quickly across species. Um, but what became very obvious to us um, was that the feeding regime we used was completely impractical. 
Um, it was actually hor horrible. Uh, we, were, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time, but we just gave the animals everything we possibly could. And so if you are familiar with culturing fish, you'll know that you definitely don't want to be providing live algae and copepods for over 30 days. Um, that's an incredible amount of work. The same thing with rotifers and artemia and all of these different food sources. So, you know, algae, copepods, rotifers, different types of artemia, dry feed, frozen feeds. This was our feeding regime when we first cultured the yellow tang and what was first used for the blue tang. And we knew that this wasn't going to be practical, so we had to move on to something that would be more practical. And especially if we want to commercialize this, uh, you know, no commercial hatchery is going to adopt this feeding um, regime. So we did a study that we then later published and in the Journal of the Bull Aquaculture Society to revise the feeding regime for yellow tang. So this is um, publicly available, and if anyone wants a copy of this, I can um, give it to you freely. Just come see me after. Um, but it, it's available for, for your review. But basically, what that study did was shorten the feeding regime for a lot of live feed and um, introducing the frozen and dry feeds earlier and looked at the effect on yellow tang growth and survival. So you can see the old regime was the black bars, you know, those long periods of algae, long periods of copepods, et cetera. And the red bars indicate the duration of the new regime. You can see we cut the algae uh, um, use in half, copepods in half, rotifers in half, um, and we introduced things a lot earlier. And the results of this were really interesting. By doing this, we actually saw a positive increase in growth. So these um, figures indicate the body depth and body length the, on the original feeding regime in black and the revised in red. Um, you can see that the, the red line actually, um, the fish on the revised treatment actually grew a little bit faster. And this was actually seen when we would sample the individuals at different time points. You could see that the individuals were notably bigger and they actually settled and became juveniles faster um, than under the original feeding regime. And survival was equivalent. So we didn't improve survival, which was still fairly low, less than 1% uh, in many cases, but we did improve growth. And so um, that, that really was a, a key uh, fact in the next stage of, of trying to commercialize this technology is now we have a feeding regime that makes it a lot more feasible for commercial hatchery. So where do we go from here? And you know that's the million dollar question is we, we finally had something that we felt was um, commercializable but we were basically out of money uh, and out of time on our grants to, to do anything with it and that's why there's a gap in time from 2015 to 2019 of why you're only just seeing yellow tang being made available now. I'd, back in 2016, everyone's like, well, where are all the yellow tang? You know, it, it can be done. Why isn't it being done? And the, the truth is, is it's, it's not and still isn't yet a really commercializable technology. Um, and that's what we're working on right now. And with um, our commercial partner, Biota, uh, we're, we're starting to do the research that it takes to commercialize this technology. Um, and we're, we're trying to develop methods to make it more uh, applicable to other species. And to do this, we're asking the question of can it really be done at scale? So can you produce species like yellow tang in a meaningful way uh, at commercial numbers? And to do this, it takes a lot of effort, as you can imagine. It takes a lot of larval tanks um, that you need to fill with a lot of eggs. It takes huge amounts of copepods. So we're talking 60, 80, 100 million copepod nauplii per day, okay? 
to supply that many copepod nauplii, we need vast amounts of algae. We use over 1,000 liters of algae of different species every day. Um, so to produce those kind of numbers, to, to run multiple larval tanks, um, you know, tens of millions, nearly 100 million copepods a day, thousands of liters of uh, microalgae a day, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of staff and a lot of money. Um, so that's why, uh, you know, when you're trying to take something from the research phase to the commercial phase, there's this gap in time and there's this chasm of from times, you know, where there's a first species discovery made to commercial availability. And what we're trying to do is to try to narrow that gap. And we want to work with all of you guys in order to do that. And we already know it can be applied to other species. So when Avier was in our lab a few years ago, working on a project with rising tide, we know that the same methods we were using at the time to culture yellow tang could be immediately applied to other things. So that was made apparent with the blue tang, but it was also made apparent with species that are unrelated to tang. We have butterfly fish, angelfish, even the Hawaiian cleaner ass were cultured using similar methods, largely just the same food and some of the same larval rearing approaches. So um, we've, the technology has been developed to the point now where it's broadly applied to other species. It's just taking the individual species and tweaking the methods to commercialize it. That's the next step. And in the case of Hawaii, there's a number of other surgeon fish species that make sense. Um, you know, the Achilles tang is seriously um, imperiled. Its numbers continue to go down even with pressure. So that, that's a species that makes sense to look at for aquaculture, as well as some of maybe these other surgeon fish species um, that, that could be closely related to yellow tang. So in conclusion, uh, I, this isn't, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but coral reefs are vital ecosystems that need our protection. They desperately need our protection more now than, than before. Um, we can be ambassadors for the coral reefs, you know, as we maintain them in our homes, we maintain them in our public aquariums, we can kind of tout the importance of them to people around the world. World fisheries are also in danger of being overexploited, so um, you definitely need to make informed choices when you choose the seafood you consume, as well as the way uh, you uh, consume other resources. However, aquaculture can help conserve these resources by reducing localized fishing pressure. So I would advocate that aquaculture uh, may not be the complete answer as a replacement for the uh, marine ornamental industry, but it certainly can help subsidize it and it can certainly help augment it in places where it makes sense. Uh, you can support aquaculture through purchasing more captive bred species. So this survey that was released recently seemed to indicate that almost all of you uh, prefer captive bred species if they're available or captive bred alternatives to the wild when they're available. So I would ask you to put your money where your mouth is and actually buy them if they're available. Uh, and hopefully in seeing this presentation and others like it, you're gonna understand why captive bred species, at least right now, cost more than their wild caught alternative. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into producing these things. And even if you can produce 1,000 or 2,000 of something at a time, uh, it still costs you tens of thousands of dollars to do it. <laughs> and so it's not gonna, you know, you're not gonna get rich quick um, producing these, these things. Um, so you can also ask for more. Um, you know, places like us and other research institutions are only gonna be able to pursue the development of this technology to produce these fish if there's demand for it and if there's funding being made available for it. And that's my next point is that funding is still a big challenge. So even though 
there's been a lot of success recently in producing ornamental fish, not just with our, our lab, but other labs around the world. Um, there's almost zero dollars available to fund the research to do it. And there's clearly a lot more research that's needed to do it. Um, and that's where the private sector has really stepped up. And the, um, the private sector is finally getting involved in supporting some of the research. And we definitely are appreciative of that. Um, we still have lots to learn, but their commercial potential is there. You know, we can now produce hundreds, if not low numbers of thousands of yellow tang at a time. Uh, that was kind of an unheard of dream, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, I personally was one of the people who thought it was actually never going to happen. Um, but I'm my own worst critic, and it happened <laughs> despite my own uh, negativity. Uh, so it, I think that really we're on the cusp of a new horizon for ornamental aquaculture. And I think in, if we look, at the, we look back 20 years at this present, you know, these presentations, it's going to be amazing where we are 20 years from now. So with that, I do, do want to acknowledge the, the supporters. Um, certainly USDA, Center for Tropical and Subtropical Aquaculture has been a big supporter, as is NOAA. Um, Rising Tide has supported uh, our work recently with Yellow Tang and other species, like when Avery was at the lab. Uh, the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund, Hawaii Tourism Authority um, have all stepped up to give us money to support this effort, as has uh, recently Biota Aquariums uh, being a commercial partner now supporting this research to help develop the commercialization aspect of it. So with that, I'll basically say that it's not over, it's just to be continued. Thanks.